grab your Bibles with me and turn to the letter of Ephesians. You'll find Ephesians towards the back of your Bibles there in the New Testament. Um, wonderful gift of our Lord to provide us with this letter written by Paul to the believers in the region of Ephesus. Uh, we are today at our 60th sermon in this book. Uh, what a great journey it has been, uh, rich and so full of good things for us, the people of God full of good news of Jesus Christ our Lord and what he has done. I'm very excited about part two today of the Spirit-filled life as we continue to move through chapter 5, verse 18 through 21. Let's read that together. Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making a melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. What a true gift your holy word is to have what you want for us to reveal to us about who you are and how you work and what you have done and what you promised to do, about who we are and what you have for us to honor you. Lord, let us submit to your holy word this morning out of reverence for Christ, that we'd come ready and pliable, not excuse-making, not bowed up with pride or arrogance, but humble and ready, and pliable, move mightily, our good God. We pray these things confidently in the name of Jesus. Amen. The last part of verse 18 says, Be filled with the Spirit. Paul says that the wise and maturing Christian desires to be so filled with the Spirit of God that he or she bears the fruit of the Spirit and the faithful testimony and ministry of Jesus Christ. Fellow Christ follower, follower, we are to walk in the power, the wisdom, and the conviction of the Spirit. How foolish we are to pursue anything other than Him to fulfill us to empower us, to purpose us. When we are filled with the Spirit, when we maximize all that He offers us, He will do marvelous things in and through us. Being filled with the Spirit is not in relationship to any kind of special miraculous gifting that is unique to one individual more than another. The Holy Spirit is fully on board in every believer at salvation. For it is the work of the Spirit to give new birth, spiritual awakening, without which no person would repent and trust their lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now Paul's reference here is to our giving ourselves to the full control 
and leadership of the Holy Spirit. How much of you is given to the Holy Spirit? And he's saying, let there be a full dose of you, that you would be filled, not compartmentalizing who you are, but given to the Holy Spirit in every way. When we are filled by the Spirit, completely given to God, it means that there's a real purging then of the things that once filled our cup. The, the things we were once tempted to be filled by. When we're filled by the Spirit, God produces in us a different life than when we tried to be filled by anything else. Church, it's a better life. A more purposeful and focused life. And truly a more God-honoring life. Building on this, Paul then identifies four evidences of the Spirit-filled life in the next verses. Last week we studied two of them, found in verse 19. Look at that with me. Ephesians 5.19 Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making a melody to the Lord with your heart. There's a Christ... I'm sorry, there's a God-centered fellowship that we experience. A one another a speaking truth and, and, and preaching truth and exhorting one another that wells us up with authentic worship for God. We also saw last week God is exalting worship, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making a melody to the Lord with your heart. If you missed our focus on the last couple Sundays that really are the setup for where we're at today, the first parts of verse 15, dealing with drunkenness and alcohol and, and instead being filled by the Spirit, that's sermon two Sundays ago, and then last week's sermon of um, God-centered fellowship and God-exalting worship. We took some time to really look at corporate worship in particular. Um, I encourage you to go back and not miss those sermons and find that as a good undergirding to our what we're going to study today. As we move into verse 20 and 21, you will see that the Spirit-filled life produces also God-targeted gratitude and Christ-honoring submission. Let's look at God-targeted gratitude. Paul continues saying, giving thanks Always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You realize without faith, without spiritual life, without the Spirit, you don't thank God. You don't do anything for God. Even if you say you do, your aim is still the flesh. A sinful, enslaved person does not have a true faith-filled aim to please God, to honor God. It is the work of the Spirit. It is, as it says here, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are represented, we are completed, we are partnered with Christ. So therefore, now we... We thank the Father. We live for His glory. 
Paul has already called the saints to thanksgiving earlier in the chapter, in chapter 5, verse 3 through 4, contrasting a thankful practice with the sinful vices of sexual immorality, of impurity, of greed, of obscenity, foolish talk, and coarse joking. Now, Paul returns to the testimony of God-centered thanksgiving or God-targeted thanksgiving as an evidence of one who is filled by the Spirit. Spirit-filled children of God give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Shakespeare famously once wrote in Ken Leary, he said, How sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. How very true that is. Ungratefulness in children produces all kinds of complaining, sour attitudes, fits, gross selfishness, stealing, and just heartache in the home and the life of the family. But consider with me, church, how much more repugnant and problematic it is for the testimony of the redeemed children who belong to God, who have received the gracious forgiveness and deliverance from sin of the Father because of Christ, only to be thankless selfish, constantly critical, and complaining. Christian, stop and be honest today. Are you guilty of this? Complaining and too often focusing on what you don't have and how things are not going your way instead of being thankful Joyful, focusing on what you have received in Christ. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Paul's teaching those who are in Christ Jesus that the will of God for us is to give thanks in all circumstances. I want you to think about how radical that is. What is the will of God for those in Christ Jesus? That we are thankful people. Despite what we're in the middle of, we're thankful. We're so thankful we give thanks in every circumstance we find ourselves in. We might be full of tears, but also full of thankfulness not because you're crazy but because the work of God through the gospel the power of the spirit is at work in you let that wash over you for a minute because in our flesh our thankfulness is temperamental it's, if, if your thankfulness is motivated by your flesh, it is temperamental. 
And if all of a sudden you're going, but that's me. My thankfulness is constantly temperamental. So then I would say that you, although you belong to Christ and have the Spirit, are producing or, or putting forth a thankfulness that's not out of the overflow of the gospel at work in you. Because who you are in Christ and how that good news moves is so much greater than any of your temporal circumstances. When our flesh is at the helm and not Jesus Christ, our attitude is often full of an attitude of frustration and anger and bitterness for all the things that didn't go the way you wanted them to or you had planned on. And so we're grumpy. We're grumpy at all the ways people bother us or how people didn't live up to our expectations. The will of the Lord is that our attitude would be one of thanks instead of these fleshly responses that we're often way too prone to. And you can connect that to a reality of, are you filled with the Spirit? Is this good news constantly in your mind and your heart and moving and motivating you? Or are you kind of, you have some of the Spirit, you, you're, you're giving yourself to the Spirit in some ways, but then you're also giving yourself in your hopes and your longings to these other things. The life, the evidence of a life filled with the Spirit is one of steadfast thankfulness. The question is how? How can it be an authentic response and not just a self-made override or a mask we put on? And the answer is the gospel. How can you truly and authentically be thankful in every circumstance? Saving grace. Life with God. A life you didn't earn or deserve in any way. A grace that has set you free from a prison of shame and doom like nothing else. Paul says in Romans 6.17, But thanks be to God that you were once slaves to sin. That you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. You were slaves of sin and death, but have been set free to serve Jesus and obey His commands and to, to live for His glory. Paul says, thanks be to God. Church, constant thankfulness is the proper response of the gospel of Jesus in our lives. Here again, the heart of Paul as he writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, 12-15, I, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to this service, who formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. All of that gospel reality, all of that clear view of who He was and who He now is in Christ, and what does it produce? I thank Him. He's thankful. 
Paul gets it. He gets the motivation for constant gratitude to God because he sees that he was a slave. He was doomed. He had no hope on his own. And yet God in his mercy set us free. He gets how far away from God's holy standard he was. So he's so thankful of what God has done to send Jesus to atone for the sins of his people. This is why we are thankful in all circumstances, church. There is an attitude of gratitude that the redeemed people of God must be known for. For the gospel to shine in and through us in this dark and depressed world we live in. It can't be fake. It can't be superficial. It must be fueled by the gospel that changes everything in you. You must be fueled by the Spirit who is now completely at work in and through you. Church, we have to do some serious business with this this morning. Because I fear that far too many of you in your faith is too compartmentalized. And therefore it misses the opportunity to really be thankful in everything. And so I ask you personally to think about it. Is this you? And maybe a way to evaluate that is, are you known as a person who's constantly thankful? Is that how people know you? That's your disposition, your testimony. Or are you known for being a negative person? A person who's always grumpy, always has something to complain about. Are you constantly bitter at how life is coming at you? Always finding something to gripe at. Do you realize that there's a gospel work and motivation that can cause the most chastised, the most abused, the most cheated person in the world to truly be reborn with a demeanor of authentic thankfulness? When other people run into you, when they run into the people of Disciples Church, what do they walk away thinking of? What's the thing they can't shake? What do they experience or hear from us as they interact with us? Do they sense a joyful contentment, a thankfulness no matter what you're going through? Or do they experience people who are often really no different than anyone else in their testimony? I want you to do business with this this morning. So that what we leave here with is not an effort for a superficial thankfulness. But one that is truly the overflow of the Spirit at work in you. Of the reality of truly who you are in the Christ and the Gospel it, it, the rebirth of that, the, the, the being set free of that sin, it moves in you. You're a redeemed child of God. The absence of a true God-targeted gratitude should be of great concern, Christian, to you. Because maybe that means an absence of of true understanding of the depth of the saving grace that has been given to you. Paul warns of this in 2 Timothy 3, 1-5. But understand this, that in the last days, 
there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. And notice what sits in the middle of all these things. They'll be ungrateful, unholy, heartless, inappeasable, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And what what does he say? Avoid such people. Christian, do you see how ungratefulness is a fruit of the flesh, not a fruit of the Spirit? The Spirit-filled person is truly grateful, always, because they've been given something so great, watch this, so significant, so lasting, that it can't be matched with all of the fallout and failures of the world to bring our spirit to a place of ungratefulness can't be matched and so I ask you is that your gospel reality if not we need to wake up and we need to repent we need a good dose of gospel reorientation and cling to the spirit in such a way that we're moved into a different disposition Christian the fact that the holy God elected to save you by God's Son's sacrifice in your place, when you didn't deserve it, should so redefine who you are and how you live with unending gratefulness that it is an unavoidable reality about who you are. Psalm 30, 12, O Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. Let me share with you a far inferior story that I think makes the point that I'm trying to make here and hopefully helps us see just how much we might be missing the mark and the potency and consistency of our gratitude to God, our God-targeted thankfulness. Imagine this scene, if you will. You're on the Florida coast. The sun is setting Look like a gigantic orange ball. It's the cool evening on a vacant, isolated stretch of beach. The water's lapping at the shore. The breeze is blowing slightly. There are one or two joggers, a couple of fishermen, but most have gone home for the day. And you look up and you see an old man curved shoulders and bushy eyebrows and bony features hobbling down the beach carrying a bucket carries the bucket up to the pier he stands on the pier and you notice as he looks to the sky and all of a sudden then you see a mass of dancing dots soon you recognize that they're seagulls they're coming out of nowhere it feels like The man takes out of his bucket handfuls of fish and begins to throw them on the dock. The seagulls come and land all around him. Some land on his shoulders, some land on his hat, and they eat the fish. 
Long after the fish are gone, his feathered friends linger. There he is, the old man and the birds. What's going on here? Why is this man feeding these seals? What could compel him to do this? Week after week, as he does. The man in the scene is Eddie Rickenbacker, a famous World War II pilot. His plane, the Fine Flying Fortress, went down in 1942, and no one thought he would be rescued. Perhaps you've read or heard about he, how he and his eight passengers escaped death by climbing into two rafts for 30 days. They fought thirst, the sun, the sharks, but what nearly killed them was starvation. Their rations were gone within eight days, and they didn't have anything left. Rickenbacker wrote that even on those rafts every day, they would have a daily devotional and prayer time. One day after devotional, Rickenbacker leaned back, put his hat over his eyes, tried to get some rest. Within a few moments, he felt something on his head. And within an instant, he knew it was a seagull that perched on his raft. But he knew they were hundreds of miles from the shore. Where did the seagull come from? He was certain that if he didn't get that seagull, he would die. Soon all the others on the two boats noticed the seagull. No one spoke, no one moved. Rickenbacker quickly grabbed the seagull, and with thanksgiving, they ate the flesh of the bird. They used the intestines for fish bait, and they survived. Rickenbacker never forgot the gift that the seagull was to him, the sacrificial guest. So every week, he goes out on the pier with a bucket of fish and says, Thank you, thank you, thank you. What the story is missing is gratitude for the one who created the bird, providentially provided the bird, the one who's truly worthy of his gratitude. But I think the story helps reveal why. Why we would be thankful every day for what was provided for us so that we would spiritually live. That man woke up every day thankful for that bird. And he was known in his testimony for that thankfulness. If you knew that man, you knew that story. You knew the testimony. And you knew his gratitude. And how much more, church, that should be the case for us who were saved by God through the blood of the Lamb. Amen? See with me the potency of that testimony. This should be our testimony. So much more, your salvation in Christ and because of God's grace is truly a life-altering event of the greatest proportions that should bring with it a never-ending testimony of God-targeted gratefulness. Dads, we need to be known for this in our homes Moms, too. Children who are saved. Is this, is this how you're known among your peers? Is this how we're known among our co-workers? Is this how we're known in our neighborhoods? 
Let me remind us of the testimony of Habakkuk. He models it for us well. I think it's particularly helpful in times like these that we're in the middle of. In the beginning of Habakkuk's testimony, he's not in a good place. Cries out to God with complaints and bitterness for his hard situation. Habakkuk 1, 2 through 4. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted. Over the next few chapters and verses, we see God do a very important thing for Habakkuk. He reminds him who God is and what God has done. Habakkuk 1.5, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you will not believe if told. Maybe you're tracking with me and applying some of this to the very days we're in. I would encourage you to consider going back to our podcast and taking time to really sit with the meat of Habakkuk. I preached through it years ago. I believe it will be a great help to you in navigating the times that we're in right now. God says, look and be astounded. I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. And how often do we look at our situation and circumstances and say, God, what are you doing? God goes on to tell him what his sovereign plan is. And it makes no sense to Habakkuk. He tells him things are going to get worse before they get better. But Habakkuk recalls the unfathomable things that God has done in the past. And it causes his soul to well up with faith in God. His circumstances have not changed, notice. And he's just been told they're about to get a lot worse. He stops resting on his circumstances and he starts standing on the faithfulness and the sovereignty of his mighty God. And even though the storm rages on the surface, he's been reminded of the strength of the rock he stands on. To the point that he says in chapter 3, verse 17, watch this, even though it's bad and it's about to get a lot worse, he says one of the most potent words in the mouth of someone who has true faith in God. Here's all this bad. Here's all this persecution. Here's how it's all going bad. And he says, yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk 3.18 Even while standing downstream of absolute physical ruin and abject famine, the prophet is prepared to trust in God. He realizes that inner peace and thankfulness did not depend on his outward prosperity, but on the God of his salvation. Notice Habakkuk did not state that he would merely endure the hour of distress that was coming his way. He said he would rejoice in the Lord and be joyful. He would take on a true attitude of gratitude. So I ask you again today, are your feet 
firmly grounded on the rock that is Jesus Christ, on the God of your salvation, that you are filled in the Spirit. When the temporary is crumbling all around you, when injustice and death and immorality are literally raining down in your life, and the storm waters are raging, do you remember who you are in Christ? Who the God of your salvation is? Church, our hope can't be in the production of our retirement package, in the promise of employment tomorrow, in, 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 in the leaders that are elected to office. In vaccines, it can't be in this stuff. It has to be in God. Because all of that can go bad. And it is, and it will. I've been trying to encourage many of you lately with just the violence. The turmoil, the distrust, the, the bickering, the war, the manipulation. We, we have to remember what we've been given for a time is very unique. To live in America in these last decades and generations is to have experienced something very unique. Because all around the world, what is normal is corruption and dictatorship and people dying in the streets and manipulation and injustice. And we want to, we act like spoiled kids and it's starting to get affected and we, and, and we just are so quickly undone. Church, May we ready ourselves in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ for whatever may come. That the Lord himself very well may be saying to us, look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. You know, he went on to tell them he's going to rise up their enemy against his people. His people are going to die. And Max, like, how does that make sense? And, and his ways are not our ways, church. He's far above our thinking and understanding. He is perfect, and we are not. Are you able to say yet? Here's all the bad. Here's all the misery. Here's all the heartache. And yet, here is the God of my salvation which brings my heart total joy and gratitude. Church, this is why we do what we do to grow in joy. My job as one of your shepherds is to constantly reorient your heart to the Lord of your salvation, the Lord of joy. To preach the word in all its fullness so that your heart stay full in the truth and the wonder of the work of God filled with the Spirit so that you too would heed God's words when he says, look and see and wonder and be astounded, be boggled. 
that your faith will be so full and your joy so complete and your heart so ready to be thankful. That we genuinely have a God-targeted thankfulness. And that is what we're known for. Amen? Look with me at the next verse, verse 21. He goes on to say we are to submit to one another, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What is submission? To submit means to line up under one another. Biblical submission means a joyful, humble, wholehearted commitment to follow an appointed authority. When the Spirit is at work in you, you will practice submission to God-given authorities in your life. The ones He's commanded us to submit to. And when we do this, we show reverence to Christ. What does it mean to show reverence to Christ? Reverence here means a right fear, a high regard, a deep respect. We honor Christ as our Lord by submitting to those in authority that He has placed over us. And I just ask you up front before we begin to dig in, again, is this your testimony? Are you known as one who submits to the authorities put over you? Because there is a fleshly temperament in our society right now that says rebel. And God's word says otherwise, church. God's word calls us to submit. So what are the authorities God has placed over you? Let's do business with that. Well, it would depend on who you are, who God has ordained you to be. This command in verse 21 sets up the particular examples of God-honoring submission that Paul is about to talk about in the coming verses of this letter. This commission for us to be submitting is a big theme in our coming weeks and months, church, as we move through the end of chapter 5 and into chapter 6 of Ephesians. I'll give you a couple examples, a couple taste of where we're headed, and in this, some reminders of who we're called to by God to submit to. Children are to submit to their parents. Ephesians 6, verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Servants are to submit to their masters. Ephesians 6, 5, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters. What also falls under this one is really any of the basic lines of authority. It's what Paul says in Colossians 3, 22, Obey in everything, those who are your earthly masters, with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. This means that if you're a player on a team, you are to rightly submit to the coach. If you're a soldier in the military, you are to submit to your ranking officer. 
If you're an employee of a business, you are, you are to submit to your boss or the one you're called to report to. If you're a student of a school, then you are to submit to your teacher. In the coming weeks, we're going to see in Ephesians 5 that it is God's good and perfect will that wives are to submit to their husbands. Ephesians 5.22 Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we read other commands of submission and authority, hierarchy. Husbands are, are to submit to Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.3 But what I want you to understand is that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is is God. Church society is to submit to the governing authorities. Romans 13.1 is one of the many places we see this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Elsewhere, church members are told that they are to submit to the elders. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. All believers are to submit to Christ. Ephesians 5, 24, The church submits to Christ. James 4, 6 and 7, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. God the Son, when in His flesh, submits to God the Father. 1 Corinthians eleven three. the head of Christ is God. Jesus said in John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who has sent me. So, all these beautiful and great examples of God's command on us to submit to the authorities is put over us. And like I said a moment ago, it depends on who you are as to who you're called to submit to. My question to you is, do you take that seriously? Or in your flesh, are you quick to reason and make excuses and justify a different path? Before we move on, let me quickly give a few important biblical clarities regarding to much of what I just said. And obviously you can see, I mean, I could preach on all of those that I just mentioned, and surely we will or we have. Church, it is always essential that Scripture interprets Scripture. And so we understand what one verse is saying in light of all the rest of Scripture. And this keeps us from grabbing hold of a verse and saying, see, look what this says. We have to do this. And sometimes what that says in and of itself is missing the fuller intention or command of God in all of Scripture as we are to rightly understand it. So we must be Bereans, we must be diligent to do this and not be interested in plucking statements or words out of Scripture and making them stand on their own to say something that the Bible does not. 
For example, God the Son is equal in authority to God the Father. God the Son is not under the authority of God the Father. They are eternally equal. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in authority. So then how do I understand where it says Jesus submits to the Father? Isn't that a mode of submission to authority? Hypostatic union is critical for a right understanding of this. And sadly, much modern theological debate has happened over what is called the debate of eternal submission or subordination of God the Son to God the Father. Scripture is clear to teach us that when Jesus put on flesh, added a human nature, fully man, fully God, he took on in his flesh practices and procedures that do not belong to his divine nature. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal in authority within the Holy Godhead. One is not subordinate to another, but Christ in the flesh did not only experience many human experiences and emotions that God does not experience, the divine, he also took on the role of humbly submitting to the Father to complete his holy will while on earth and unto the cross. While some modern-day theologians have said otherwise, this is an important, historic, orthodox position in the Christian faith. Another clarity I want to give about some of the things that I spoke of. We obey our earthly authorities unless those authorities tell us to disobey God. So player, you don't follow the coach into sin. Student, you don't follow the teacher into sin. Wife, you don't follow the husband into sin. People of society don't follow their governing authorities into sin. God's word is very clear that we are to obey the governing authorities that the Lord has placed over us ultimately. Whether we like them or not. If higher taxes are a part of the next administration of leadership in our country, then we as obedient Christians need to pay higher taxes. We are to obey that. But we should not obey the governing authorities if and when they are directing us to disobey God and His commands on us. So for example, the time in life we're in, when the governor of our state directs churches to not meet or tells us how we are to meet, he doesn't have that authority. So we, the church, obey God and don't follow the authority or protocols of the state regarding these matters. This is what Christians do because our allegiance and our submission is first to God. Amen? Appointing an example of this we see in Scripture, Acts 5, 27-29, when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in his name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, 
and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. This is much of our reality in this moment, church. And I can only believe it will continue to be. And in the face of real persecution, in the threat of sickness, of cultural persecution or opinion, who do we belong to and who will we obey? May it be the living God and not men. One last point of clarity about obedience and submission that's important. Obedience doesn't mean you have to personally agree with the person that you're honoring. There will be many times that what the authority that God's placed over you asks you to do something that you don't personally agree with or like. But it's not dishonoring to God or His commands. We need to understand that God's Word still calls us to honor them, to submit to them. You don't have to like it. You don't have to agree. If what you're being asked to do doesn't go against what God's called you to do, then you should submit to them. And where you have liberty and freedom, then you can exercise that. When you do this, now check this, you're honoring God. And if they're making poor leadership decisions, then that's on them, not on you. They'll stand before the Lord to give an account for that. You honor God by submitting rightly. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. See with me, this verse is saying, is not saying God divine defined authority is put away and everyone is equal in authority and has to submit to everyone else the same. There's been a lot of misreadings of this verse to say that this is saying we all submit to one another. See? I've had, I've had wives dealing with the next text of submission to their husbands love to roll back to this verse and go, but we're to submit to one another. Like one is contradicting the other. No. This one another this submitting is a call to biblical submission to the authorities in your life that God has put over you in all their varying degrees. It's not a call to usurp hierarchy or authority as God has defined it. There are many authorities that God has placed over us, and depending on who you are, those authorities differ to some degree. But the principle remains the same. When the Spirit is at work in us, we practice submission to God, defining authorities. He has given us, and we submit to them to show reverence to Christ. Probably grab me a water. Thank you. Our modern-day society, full of sin and wicked ways, is on a mission, church, to undermine this important design and call of God. To many people... Let me say it this way. Far too many people are being encouraged or not being disciplined 
when they show a lack of submission to those God has put over them. We need to be mindful of Scripture, church, not the movement of popular movements or, or influences on our life or tradition. And, and where repentance needs to happen in these areas, church, we need to go to work. So where is submission to authority not happening in your life in these ways, as we're commanded to, thank you, as the Spirit is at work in us as it should be? It is all too common today to see children completely disrespect their parents and get away with it. Because the parents are failing to be the God-appointed authority that he has called them to be in their children's life. It is all too common to see people disregard the authority today of law enforcement. Because they believe that they have some greater sense of how that situation should be handled. But do you see, it's not their place. The authority belongs to the law enforcement officer. If something needs to be contended, contested, then we have means to do that. But when a law enforcement officer tells you to put your hands up, you are to obey him. Not sit there and argue or reason It is all too common to see modern-day church members disrespect or disregard the leadership or authority of their God-appointed shepherds. The attitude is, as long as what you're saying is something I agree with, then I'm in. I'll follow you. But when I don't like it or I disagree, then I will not. Despite how biblical it may be. And I would say, you don't have that freedom. Not according to God's economy. If it is biblical, then you should submit to your elders joyfully, faithfully. Don't make us chase you. Don't, don't, don't be dodgy. Don't be excuse-making. Practice God-honoring obedience. Humble yourself to do that. Too common to see marriages not lived out in the way God has designed them to be as wives fail to joyfully submit to their husbands or in many situations where husbands are failing to lead their wives unto the Lord. It is all too common to hear people disrespecting their boss, holding um, them in with words of critique or disrespect. Christian, you show reverence to Christ when you submit to those over you, even when you don't like them, even when you don't like what they're asking you to do. Why do you do this? Because it shows reverence to Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's saying we honor God when we practice faithful and humble submission to the authorities God has placed over us. The constant call of Scripture is to honor those who have been given authority over us. We do this with respect. We do this without grumbling. We do this without delay. We do this so that reverence is given to Christ. 
And if you have a question, ask a question. Communication's good. Let it be a way unto honoring those God's put over you. Now let's stop and ask, how do we do this when so often our flesh doesn't want to do what we're being asked to do? But we want to do it our way. We want to have a say in how we think it should go. The key is the power of the Spirit at work in you. If you only try to do this better by sheer determination or working harder, you might do it for a moment, but you won't keep it up. You might make some changes for a while, but it won't last. No, only those truly filled with the Spirit of God will be empowered by the Spirit to honor God instead of doing what the flesh wants. The key is, how are you clinging to Christ, submitting to God's Word, growing in your maturity and faith, so that the Spirit is at the helm more and more, and your flesh is at the helm less and less? I will say that God's work in you to make you more and more humble is the key to this. You can't be full of pride and ego. You can't be full of selfishness. There must be a selfless humility that is growing in you that is, makes it less and less about you and more and more about what God is calling you to do, which is humble, joyful, consistent, faithful submission to the authorities put over you. Listen to the words of Paul, Philippians 2, 1-4. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, Any participation in the Spirit. Notice that. Any affection and sympathy. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. If there is participation of the Spirit, then we will not act in selfishness, but in humility. We will rightly count others more significant than ourselves. You will not bow up against God-appointed authority. You will joyfully submit to them. Because it's not about you. It's about honoring God. As you honor and submit to those he's put over you. Christians, see with me that this is what Jesus humbled himself to do to show us. God's not asking you to do something that is out of bounds. God the Son came and modeled this for us. Look at the next verses in Philippians 2, 5-7. through Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Christ humbled himself to serve and submit to others. He did this so we who belong to him, when we bear the name Christian, would also die to ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. 
You honor Christ as you live out your Christian life in humble submission to those that God has put over you. This is Paul's point, saying spirit-filled Christians humbly practice submission to the authorities over them. And and what motivates God-honoring, spirit-empowered submission to one another? Reverence for Christ. Maybe you're struggling with this one today. If that's happening, I say praise God. It means he's taking you somewhere you haven't been. What I'm about to say maybe contradicts what I just said. Don't do this because I'm telling you. Do this because you want to show reverence to Christ. That's what's driving you. Belong to him. The heart of Christianity, Christian, is to belong to Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Modern day Christianity is oh, I pick my church, I kind of pick my bucket, I kind of pick how I'm going to participate, the ways I like to, I kind of do my Christianity kind of the way I want, and you know, and I live my life and I, and I do my best. No, you're Christianity, according to Scripture, is you die to yourself. There was a time where I, in our name discussion for this church, those who were in this discussion and laugh, I had a very hard press at one point, a big ask that we would consider calling ourselves Crucified Church. Because that's such a central part of what it means to really be a Christian. That is so often not understood today. And yet when we started to talk about like crucified kids and some of these other, it just started to go bad. (laughs) Being disciples and disciple makers is obviously a massive part of what we're called to do. Praise God that we made a good choice. You don't belong to yourself. True Christianity is you've died to yourself and now live for Christ. The path you are on belongs to Him. Your retirement plans, the way you steward your days, what you do with yourself. It's not a matter of what you like, what's convenient, what works best. It all belongs to Him. True saving faith in Jesus is the freedom, watch this, found in dying to yourself and living for Christ. I want you to hear the utter nuance, what I just said. I said freedom in Christ means belonging to Him. Freedom and belonging typically don't go together. But it is critical we get this, not just in our heads, but our hearts. Christian, what it means to be a Christian is to belong to Jesus. To submit your life to him. To die to yourself and live for him. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by testing that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How I pray that you will truly and fully submit your life to Jesus, to not be wise in your own eyes, 
No longer living according to the priorities of this world or the longings of your flesh, but to long to live for God. Live for Him and under His authority. Do you count it utter joy to be under the authority of God? To be a slave to Christ? Do you joyfully call Him Master What is amazing is that when we are reborn in true faith, we don't want to be under our own authority anymore. We see the lostness of our old ways. We want to be commanded by God. We want His law to instruct and direct us. So do you submit to God? Do you submit yourself to His law? Meaning when, it's, when his written word says something totally opposite to what you want or what you think is right, you submit. You don't go your own way. No matter how in love you are, no matter how much financial sense it makes, no matter how good it feels to you, you don't give in to your flesh or your selfish reasoning. No, you honor God. You put your life on the altar. You obey His commands, and it is your joy to do so. Finally, the New Testament calls for our submission church to be a marker of our exile testimony. When we do this the way God equips us, commands us, there's a, 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 our submission stands out as the sweet testimony of belonging to Christ. Listen to Peter's words, 1 Peter 2, 15-20 as we close. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle, but to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Church, do you see the testimony of those who belong to Christ is one of submission. And we show reverence to our Lord as we do. Your call is to submission. If we do this, even in the face of suffering, Peter says this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is the testimony God wants us to have. We must see how important this is to God. Paul is going to spend much of the next part of this letter speaking to God honoring submission in many important ways. I pray you don't miss what is to come. I look forward to this time in God's Word together, especially as next week we enter into the full and wonderful topic of marriage in one of the biggest and most important texts of all Holy Scripture as dealing with that topic. Be praying for me. Be praying for those who would join us as we dig in over the weeks to come. I want to close today's service in a time together at the Lord's table, the body of Christ, united 
as one in testimony and obedience. This is a practice the Lord himself instructed the church to do until he returns to take us home and be with him in holy heaven. Here, the testimony as in given in Luke twenty-two fourteen through 20. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that you will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is, the, is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus gave this practice for us to testify, church. Testify of what he has done to a watching world that they would see his substitutional sacrifice on the cross for undeserving sinners. Our prayer is that if you don't know Jesus as Lord, you would repent and trust in him. If you do not know Jesus as Lord, this is not for you to participate in. It's for you to witness, for you to watch these who go to the table, see that God has saved them despite themselves. That you too need a Savior or you stand condemned. It is our prayer that you would repent and believe and one day join us at the table, not only here, but forever. Amen, church? Only Christ can save us. And he is the one due all our obedience and praise. And so we come faithfully to the table. I'm going to pray. The band is going to lead us in a last song. The tables around the room will be open um, for you to participate, church. Let us do this in honor of the King. Jesus name we pray lord we thank you for this time together we thank you for the sacrifice of the son his humility his model and his obedience unto death in our place his body broken his blood shed so that a new covenant could be made between the holy god and your people. It is a sweet thing to gather and to worship you, to testify of your gospel in this way. Do your work for the eternal good of those who would see it. Do your work in the hearts of those that belong to you, that we would confess and repent of our sin and know that we are forgiven. Be glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray.